Vipalaso. Let's go directly into meditation. I'll read a few passages from the tantras that are cited by Padmasambhava. I don't think they much need any commentary. I'll just read them. Just let your mind be very still, not trying to figure out anything or reflect upon or analyze, just being totally relaxed, like as if I'm dropping or tossing little pebbles into a, a pool of water. Just let the words drop into the pool of your mind and come and settle in the ground of your mind and see what happens. But without expectations, totally relaxed. In the, in the spirit of loving-kindness, wishing yourself well and all other beings well, settle your body, speech, and mind in their natural states. Padmasambhava continues chapter 119 of the Tantra Equal to Space, which synthesizes the definitive meaning of the great perfection, states, This Dharmakaya, free of extremes, is not non-existent, but is mindful and sensible. It is not nihilistic, but is aware 
and clear. It is not eternalistic, but is without substance. It is not dualistic, but is unpaired. It has no pair. It is not a unity, but it pervades everything. The text, self-emergent, unborn, natural luminosity, states, If you know the, the reality of this unceasing, immutable awareness, which is primordially present, that is the contemplation of Vajrasattva. Vajrasattva here is simply a synonym for Samantabhadra.
And it continues, because the, re- the ultimate reality of the mind has no birth or death. It is present without a beginning or an end. Thus, since it is unchanging in the three times, it is insubstantial and pervasive, and it is, therefore, like space. Free of the extremes of superimposition and denial, which is to say free of the extremes of our projections, but also our denials, our refusal to see. Free of the extremes of superimposition and denial, free of existence, without concepts. It is not non-existent and is free of nihilism. free of the extremes of existence and non-existence. It is self-emergent. And as the nature of awareness is without birth and cessation, it is an embodiment of natural luminosity, immaculate and luminous. It has no outside or inside. So it is the self-knowing Dhammakaya.
Please continue meditating in the way you see fit, whether to continue in the Sokchen meditation, or if you wish to go down to more of a foundational level, the awareness of awareness, taking the mind as a path, or mindfulness of breathing. Find the method that suits for right now, and let's spend the, the rest of the session in silence.
원하소. Pick up from where we left off yesterday, and I think we'll pretty, uh, pretty well wrap up this stream, but you'll see where it's going. Um, I think it's not trivial, and I'll be tackling some problems that I think very people are tackling nowadays. Uh, but I'll start with a quote from Sigmund Freud that I think relates to everything just discussed. Um, he wrote, it was in his book, The Future of an Illusion, He wrote it in 1927, and the central theme of the book, he was an atheist his whole life, and the central theme of his book was quite interesting and complex in the sense that he felt that religion is really fantasy, it's just, it really is superstition, and it's just like one thing, religion, um, that is kind of an expression of an infantile infantile kind of spacious kind of sense um, that it's come all the doctrines and so forth are there basically to kind of give us some sense of security in the midst of the unknown like death for example um, but in, but interesting so but that's not new I mean nothing but the interesting point here was that he felt that for humanity for for the preservation of civilization religion's necessary it's necessary that human populations, except religion. Because he said, if we don't have religion, we'll just wind up just killing each other as for, you know, for stuff. For, if, you look, if you look ahead for diminishing oil, for diminishing this, diminishing that, the competition will get fiercer and fiercer and fiercer until we'll kind of kill each other off to the last man. So he gave have a very bleak outlook of what humanity would be capable of if we hadn't, didn't have religion. Uh, and he said, religion, one of the big things it brings us is morality, and that is that you'll be punished if you're bad, and you'll be rewarded if you're good, but only after this life. In other words, that keeps you good and persuades you to avoid doing evil until you're dead. In other words, it keeps you good the whole time. Um, and then you can't report back, of course, whether you know, it wound up being true. So, so no, nobody, no, no whistleblowers. <laughs> you know? um, I find it fascinating because there's, I mean, there's no question this is a very, very intelligent man. I mean, still, here he is talking about him, you know, 90 years later or so. Part of my, part of my mind thinks that, and part of my mind is, what are you thinking? You know, you're saying religion is completely nonsense, but believe it, everybody. But you said it in the same paragraph. Like, You expected everybody to become amnesiac, amnesiacs by the time they got to this? Oh, yes, we believe. But what did you say? I can't remember. That it's all bullshit? Oh, what? What? You know? um, or is it just the intelligent people, you know, like him, that they can handle it? But for the proletariat, the plebeians, the unwashed workers and so forth, um, let them believe it. But we smart people, we don't believe that rubbish. But you people... You know, not as smart and educated as us. You need to believe this, otherwise you'll kill everybody. Um, but of course, that just doesn't work. It doesn't make any sense, does it? I mean, nobody's that stupid. And if the smartest people are telling you that religion are just, is just complete nonsense, then you won't believe it anymore. But then if you don't believe it anymore, then he's acting as an agent for the destruction of human civilization because he's blowing the whistle on it. So what I said was not brilliant. What I've just said here, you don't need to be very smart to say that. It's kind of like, gee, two plus two equals, you know? 
So why did he think that would work? Why did he think that what he was, ma- what he was saying made any sense at all? Because if people don't believe him, then they'll think he's, he's complete nonsense, but if they do believe him, they'll wipe out human civilization. Very strange. And so I think he needed, to be san- san- I think he needed psychoanalysis. <laughs> Dr. Freud, you have a split personality here. Part of you thinks that... You know. But it does remind me of Einstein. And I think we can all agree he was a pretty smart guy. But to say that we have absolutely no free will, but, well, gosh, pretend? And all of the fate of human civilization depends on pretending to believe something you don't? How does that make any sense at all? Again, I think we have this complete fracture in a human being where they just don't talk to each other. Somehow the the simplest things don't get through. That either you're going to have to reassess your notion of absolute determinism or you're just going to have to say we're bound for destruction because people will not be morally responsible if they feel they are robots. And again, does anybody really believe that? Is there any materialist that says, do away with the entire penal system, empty all the jails, don't punish anybody? Because after all, you don't punish computers, you don't punish robots, you don't punish your cell phone. They didn't, they're not making any choices. You try to repair them if you can, but the whole notion of punishment. But who's saying that? Again, this fracture. I think that's what I was struggling with when I was growing up. This, you know, good, a good family. I was raised in a very good family, and I just couldn't believe some of the core themes of their religion. And then here, over here, science, lots and lots of facts. But then where in all of science do we find any morality, any sense of this is virtuous and non-virtuous? Biology, in biology, the words virtue and non-virtue have no meaning. It's survive and procreate. That has meaning. What is conducive to your survival and procreation? That means something. Then you can say that's virtuous, but then that's not virtuous at all. That's just going out and killing all the other males and screwing all the females. That means you survive and you procreate. But that's, that's just savagery. So it's a convoluted world here. But Sigmund Freud is very, very brilliant, but very interesting and complex individual. He makes a very interesting statement in the same book. He says, the problem of a world constitution, a worldview, a picture of how the universe is, that takes no account of the mental apparatus by which we perceive it. In other words, a view of, pardon me if I'm just being silly here, redundant, but a view of the universe, human, human existence, the, the whole shebang, a view of the universe that doesn't take into account the role of mind, consciousness, in nature, in human existence, that doesn't take, if that's in which that's not an integral feature of your understanding of reality as a whole. Such a world constitution that takes no account of the mental apparatus by which we perceive it is an empty abstraction of no practical interest. Well, he's just described modern science. Because modern science, since Galileo, was never intended from the beginning, not from Galileo's time, not from Newton's time, not from James Clerk Maxwell's time. And he was late 19th century and greatest physicist after Newton uh, with electromagnetism. He was a devout Christian, a Protestant, a Scot. But none of them were presenting physics as this is the totality of reality, whole of reality. They were saying this is our best shot at understanding physical reality. But they were all religious, all of them. They were all Christian, devout, very sincere. 
I mean, Newton spent most of the last 25 years of his life writing theology, not physics. Right? Galileo was raised, trained as a contemplative. And James Clerk Maxwell is, again, again, as I said, a very devout Christian. So they never ever imagined that what they were doing, and those may be the three greatest up to Einstein, and he also was religious in a way. Uh, they never thought this would be a whole worldview, but now that's what it's become. Physics and then biology emerging out of physics and then psychology emerging out of biology. But what we have is, for that whole 400 years, all the questions are physical. And you ask, ask a physical question and you get a physical answer. It's kind of like, you know, obvious. They're all physical. Right. So it really struck me when I was studying cosmology about 20, 20 years ago. Uh, I remember reading a book by, was a, by a Harvard cosmologist, relatively short, very well written. He knew his stuff, and he gave a complete account of the universe. It was kind of like you know, you, short, short history of the universe, but it was a bit more readable, perhaps. And uh, from start to finish, 13.7, 8 billion years ago, and then he just rolled it out right up to the present. The present. And there was no reference at all to mind or consciousness. It was just nowhere there. It was the history of the entire universe, and mine never even came up. You know. In other words, that is a, shall I read it again? A world constitution that takes no account of the mental apparatus by which we perceive it, the universe. There's another book that I read called The Discoverers. I've cited it quite a few times. Daniel Burston, eminent historian, a really extraordinary erudition. And he wrote a history, a big fat book, about 500 pages, maybe 600 pages, called The Discoveries, and it's a, a history of humanity's discoveries in recorded history, the last 5,000 years or so. So it went back to the ancient Chinese and the, the, uh, the Indians and the Egyptians and the Greeks and the Romans and the Hebrews, and, and then gradually we say, whoa, now, you know, that, that was cool. But then it starts to converge in upon Europe, you know, and then it stays in Europe. And then we have the rise of science, and then a lot of detail. It finally comes to the present moment. But he tried to hit all the big highlights of everything. Biology, physics, chemistry, astronomy, geology, just everything that human beings have been discovering. So it's a pretty ambitious endeavor, right? And uh, so I was reading, 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 very well written, very, very well researched, outstanding scholarship. I have to say very ethnocentric, because he kind of left everybody behind as soon as he got to the Eurocentric like whatever they're doing elsewhere, like whatever, because we found the scientific method. The Europeans found that. And so everybody else just kind of fell, fell back into the shadows as soon as the European story started, Eurocentric. But as I was reading it, I got curious, uh, what about the discoveries of the mind? You know, it's part of human existence, right? What about, you know, where were the big discoveries about the nature of mind, consciousness? So... I looked in the index, consciousness. Okay, where are the big discoveries? That's not even there. Nowhere cited in the whole book. 600 pages or something like that. No reference to consciousness at all. I said, okay, get, well, mind. Give me mind. Give me mind. I looked back there in the index. 600-page book. Two pages. Two pages for humanity's discoveries relevant to the mind in the last 5,000 years. Two pages. You know the story, yeah? And so, 
boy, two pages. I mean, how many people did he cram into two pages? It just, is it kind of just an index of, you know, Zhuangzi and Shankara and Buddha and Nagarjuna and Chantikirti and Chantideva and St. Augustine and, you know, who'd, how many people can you jam into two pages? You know, the history of humanity, all civilizations about the mind. And there only turned out to be two people that made the most significant discoveries about the nature of the mind in all of human history. And son of a gun, they both turned out to be in the 20th century, and they're both white guys. Freud and Jung. Nobody else got any mention at all. So that was interesting. I could have sworn the Buddha had something to say about the mind. <laughs> so, but if we take that, if he's right, because... I mean, he's an awfully smart guy, and he's saying it's an empty abstraction of no practical interest. He's just described all of Western science. Describing the whole universe, and there's just no description, no explanation of the mind or its role in nature. It's an empty abstraction. So what he's saying is that this whole worldview, all of our books on cosmology and the evolution of life on the planet and everything else, that whole picture, you know, what we hold in mind, that's, that's where we live, that's our universe. Built billions of light years across, more than 13.8 billion. It turns out to be long, wider than that for various reasons. All That whole picture is an empty abstraction, and it exists nowhere, it exists nowhere but in the mind of the person who believes in it. That's what he's saying, and in fact, I think he's right. It exists relevant to your measurements, but your measurements were only physical. So if we're really taking John Wheeler and, Ein and uh, Seilinger and Stephen Hawking seriously, then there's one view of reality, but it's reality as it arises relative to a whole bunch of physical measurements, but no introspective measurements whatsoever. They never come up, ever. Right? So that's an interesting idea. Our whole notion of the universe in modernity, 2014, is an empty abstraction that exists only in the minds of those who conceive it. But we see that there's this breath of fresh air. And it's very recent, so I'm so glad I lived in this era. Because boy, if I were trying to teach Dharma in the late 19th century, boy, that'd be hard. Because the science was absolutely materialistic, absolutely metaphysical realism, absolutely mechanical. Um, man, how, would you, how do you have any dialogue at all Whereas we've seen, this is all quite recent, from Bruckner, Zeilinger, John Wheeler, Stephen Hawking, and thank goodness they're brilliant, they're world-class. You know, If they were just some little twerps on the side, then it wouldn't matter. But they're bringing in, as you, as you well know, to slightly bit of repetition, information is primary. We're living in an information age, why don't we take that seriously? And that the role of the observer-participant is absolutely fundamental to the whole universe or multiverses. But then, what's the nature of the observer-participant? Thereon hangs the tail, right? As in the measurement problem. You need to have a measurement. But what's required for measurement? Don't you need to have a measurer? Don't you need to somebody, have somebody who gets some information? I mean, really, are these two pieces of paper measuring each other? Or if a, a leaf falls from a tree and comes on the ground, did it just measure the ground? It just bumped into it. it didn't measure. There was no information. He just bumped into it, right? So if there's no consciousness, you just have things bumping into each other, right? 
So what's the nature of that observer-participant? And there's just been no movement there at all. As I said yesterday, pardon me, it would be a, bit, be a bit redundant, but there's just been no movement, any more than there's been movement for the last 90 years on the measurement problem in quantum mechanics. They just, there's just no movement. And I had that again from a top physicist that I spoke with just a few days ago. They just don't know how to move because they have, they're just not trained to gain, have any insight into the nature of the mind and its role in nature or the nature of consciousness. So they're stuck. They're really stuck. And even they went over the neuroscience department. Who's, who's going to help them there? They go to the psych department. Who's going to help them there? You know, there is no scientific theory of the mind-body relationship because none of them are testable. A whole bunch of hypotheses, but they're just that. They're simply hypotheses. And so it looks like they really need to step outside of their discipline. And maybe, frank, frankly, there's no other discipline in science that's shedding any light, you know, helping them get out of that rut. It seems like you really have to step out of science because they're not getting any answers within the parameters of science as we know it today. You have to <coughs> step outside or just sit there idling with no answer, just like where science is right now uh, with the placebo effect. Everybody knows it exists. And yet, it just doesn't make any sense. It's unintelligible within a materialistic framework. So what do they do? Stop asking the question. But that's because you can't answer the question within that paradigm. You have to jump out of that paradigm and then look, look, see what you see. So what does Freud, what does Freud have to say about that? He said, no, our science is not an illusion. What would be an illusion would be to think that we might obtain elsewhere that which science cannot give us. So now he's identified himself as an advocate of scientism. Not merely a scientific materialist, which he was, but scientist and says what religious fundamentalists all over the world have been saying forever. We have the only way. There are Buddhists who say that, Galupas who say that, oh, you Nyingmapas, you Kagyupas, you don't quite cut it. Oh, especially the Nyingmapas, you're really woolly thinkers. Woolly thinkers, woolly woolly. We galupas, we're sharp. Yep. So there are those who say that. And I'm sure there are Jews that think, no, no, we, we, are, the, we are the chosen people. And then there are Christians that say, oh, lots of them. Say, we have the only way. And the Muslims, no, we have the only way. We've been hearing that a lot. I mean, forever. But now he's doing the same. And science has the only way. And if you don't find an answer, well, just tough luck. Don't look outside. Okay. Well, happily, we don't have to follow his instructions. So now I want to go to really tackling a tough problem. And I want us to just have fun. Um, I've not seen anybody else tackle this. And I wouldn't be tackling it now if we hadn't spent a couple of days on this brilliant, ingenious, and quite possibly true theory of this quantum cosmology, which I've described and tried to explain over the last couple of days. This was triggered by a very good friend of mine. I, 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 well, I'll just leave it at that. A good friend of mine who is very knowledgeable of Theravada Buddhism, very, very knowledgeable, and has been a, a scholar and a practitioner for a very long time, and has a lot of faith, a lot of confidence, a lot of trust in the Pali Canon, in the Buddhist words. It's kind of like he's rock solid. Whatever happens, he's, he's found his home, his refuge, and I have too. So, yeah, I'm not going to find some evidence. Now there's, oh, now I give up Buddha. Not going to happen. Uh, maybe I'll just wind up being regarded as stupid by everybody, everybody in the world, but you know, that's where I'm going to die. Now I'm kind of like, I've dropped my anchor. 
here's where I stand. Because I've been, I've been you know, fishing in these waters for 44 years. If, if there's something out, out there that's going to completely knock me off my Buddhist rocker, I think I would have found out by it. So, you know, I'm an old, an old, an old fool. You know, I'm just not moving. So I have a lot of confidence. And it's born by decades of study, practice, questioning, and so forth. It's not, it was never blind faith. But here's what my friend brought to my attention. And he's a Theravada Buddhist, very knowledgeable, a lot of faith. And here's what he describes. So hold on to your seat. But in a way, it's familiar, but let's see what we can do with this one. Buddha's description of the universe, he writes, appears to be, and this is Buddha as recorded in the Pali Canon. The Buddha's description of the universe appears to be fundamentally incompatible with that of modern physics and astronomy. For example, in the Anguttara Nikaya, the Buddha gives, and I have a specific uh, citation here, the Buddha gives a description of the universe in which there is no mention that the moon is particular to planet Earth and that other planets have their own moons. It assumes that each world system, or, yeah, each world system, mm, you know, with its various continents, the four, each world system, or it's called a loka, yeah, each inhabited world, it assumes that each inhabited world, which in terms of modern astronomy may be equivalent to a planet inhabited by sentient beings, or even a solar system, a galaxy, each one has one sun and one moon. So every planet, I mean, that's the obvious, that if you're going to find a correlation in modern physics, it'd be a planet. But he's saying every planet, every inhabited planet has one sun and one moon. Are you getting nervous yet? Like, but I love the Buddha. Why would he say something like that? Each world system has Mount Sinuru or Mount Meru. Uh-oh, that's getting worse. Eh? Each world system has Mount Sinuru at its center, surrounded by the same four continents described by the Buddha in the 5th century BCE. Every planet has a Mount Meru in the center and then four continents. Uh-oh. And if you just and I didn't I didn't give it here, but it's so easy to find the description of the so-called four continents or four world sectors. They're detailed, really detailed. The shape of each of them, how long people live, what kind of people there are there. Uh, there's a lot of detail, you know. And it would be so it would make everybody so relaxed if it just was some other Buddhist speculative mumbo jumbo guy, you know, well distant from the Buddha. He just started dreaming this up by himself. You know, people do that. But it's there in the Pali Canon. The Buddha said it. So what do we do? These four continents, you know, and it's surrounded by a great ocean. One of them is the Uttarakuru, Uttarakuru, the northern continent. Northern continent. Of course, India-ish. India-ish is the southern com continent, Jambudvipa, right? Tibet's there, India, Nepal, Mongolia, up to Russia. And for Tibetans, you know, until very recently, they took all of this literally. I mean, there was no competition. Mount Meru in the center, the four continents, the Tibetans lived there, they knew India was to the south, and China there, Mongolia, Russia up there. And, uh, and then in the mid-19th century, around the time of World War II or so, they started to have some actual access to outsiders, and they heard about England and Japan and America. 
know, and people actually came from those places, yeah. You could actually see them and like that. And so one of my dear friends, he taught me Tibetan more than 40 years ago. He said, um, during that time, like just around the Second World War, Tibetan, when they're trying to take in this new information, because all they had before was Mount Meru and the Four Continents, and they're on the Southern Continent, right? But then they got these countries up coming up. So the way they did it was, was quite graphic. And they say, okay, we here in Tibet, we're, we're in the center. We're the nose. And then up above us is Mongolia and Russia. And down below us is India. And then over here is England. And over there is Japan. And America is someplace else. <laughs> that was the world. You know? And there's a friend of mine whose uh, who mother, this was about 15, 20 years ago, Tibetan, came from Amdo, way, way back in Amdo, in the wild Bunis, remote you know, Montana of, uh, of Tibet. And his mother was a very simple, very devout, pious Tibetan nomad woman, which was just pretty much isolated from all of modernity. I mean, she's had no contact. You know. And her son was a globetrotter all over the place. So he came back from his international travels and met up with his beloved mama. And he was talking about the countries he'd visited. And she asked him, tell me, my dear son, where are they, so, where are they located with respect to Mount Meru? Hard to answer. <laughs> but this Uttarakuru, Uttarakuru, the northern continent, it's an interesting one. Because when I was in Dharamsala about 1973 or so, my Tibetan language teacher at that time was a monk, Tenzin Dine. He was in the Astro Medical Center where they studied traditional Tibetan medicine but also astrology. They're hand in hand. And he was the official astronomer. There were two of them. And they, would, they were the ones that would write the ephemeris for each year. There was a lot of calculations, lots and lots and lots of arithmetic. They spent all year writing up the ephemeris, you know, with the positions of the, star, the stars and planets and so forth, uh, the astrological calendar. It was a full-time job. And they did two of them. They had no computers or anything. So if one made a mistake, the other one would catch it. They would do it independently and then cross-check, and then they'd clean up any discrepancies, and then they'd come out with the official edition. So... But what's interesting about this, this, is, this really is medieval astrology, astronomy, was that like the astronomers prior to Galileo, the astrologers, uh, like them, they could predict solar and lunar eclipses quite accurately. You know? And so it was back about, I don't remember the exact year, but something like 72, very close to that. Then Tenzin Tinle told me that, um, that a, a, a full solar eclipse was predicted on a particular day. But he told me, uh, we won't be able to see it here in, in Jambudvipa, in the southern continent. We won't be able to see it here. You'll be able to see it only in the northern continent, or the nor northern world sector. And I thought, well, I see. Well, what was kind of cool was um, my brother-in-law, my, my older sister's husband, is an, a solar physicist from UCLA. Really smart guy. And he's studying the the sun. And so I was in intermittent contact with my sister, her husband, and it turned out that he, as a solar physicist, was going to Connecticut on the east coast of the United States to witness a full solar eclipse on the day that was predicted by Tenzin Tinle with his medieval calculations. 
And you would see that eclipse in North America, but you wouldn't see it in India. The timing would be off. I thought, that's really interesting. And I thought, wow, is there some way of actually making sense of this that isn't silly? Because I don't really need to make sense of this. I don't really need the four continents and Mount Meru in my life. You know, I got the Four Noble Truths. I got my hands full. You know? But these keep on cropping up from the Pali Canon, and they run through everywhere, right? When you're offering the mandala, right? There it is. And what are you offering? You're offering Mount Meru, the four continents, and all the trimmings. And so I wondered, could, obviously it's, it's, it's not, obviously no, how do you say, no photograph from one of the orbiting satellites is going to be photographing Mount Meru. No expedition will take you up you know, the sides of Mount Meru. But I wonder whether they could be just musing. This is just for fun, right? But trying to make sense of something that almost everybody simply avoids. Either avoids or they just turn their back on science and say, I don't want to hear about it. It's really there. It's, it's inherently existently there. Or they say, one more awful religious creation myth. Oh, man, we've got six days. We've got the Mayans. We've got the Aztecs. We've got the... Everybody's got... And now, oh, the Buddhists had to do one too. Okay, out with that. You know, Planet Earth, good and chunky. We know where we are. We've all seen the photographs. We know what planet Earth looks like, and there's really good science behind it. So we can either be substantialist or we can be nihilist. Right? <laughs> so I was just playfully wondering. I mean, I just feel no existential crunch about this at all. But I thought, might they be in the same space, but like on a different bandwidth? That is, could this so-called northern continent be in the space of North America? And then you would just say, if you take the Earth like an orange and break it into four pieces, and then you would have, well, that whole sector from Russia right down to the tip of India and down you know, to the south, there's the southern world sector. And then slip over to the left, and there you would have Europe and down to Africa, there would be the western. And go over the far side, you have North and South America, the northern, and then basically the Pacific, the Pacific region, including Australia, Hawaiian Islands and so forth, being in the final area and that the polar axis would be spatially and rising up above there, where Mount Meru or Sinuru would be. Just wondered, just wondered. But what is interesting here is that it's not only that the Buddha said these four exist, but, he, but also there's an account, again from the Pali Canon, and I'll read it. Once there was a famine in the area where the Buddha and his community of monks stayed, and the monks could not obtain sufficient food. Mogalana, among all the disciples of the Buddha, was one of the incredible psychic abilities. Unbelievable. Only the Buddha topped him. Mogalana proposed to the Buddha that he open by his magical power a road to the northern world sector of Uttarakuru so that the monks could go there for alms. He said, why don't I, you know, the Sangha is starving here. Why don't I just create a warp field by the power of my samadhi and I'll just transport them all over to the northern, which has lots of crops. It's really very, very, you know, luxury, lots of food, lots of food. Why don't I just cut, you know, captain, you know, of the Star Trek, you know, whatever. I'll just create this warp field, and I'll, I'll put them in the teleporter, and I'll, and they'll be in Santa Barbara. 
or, you know, I mean, Santa Barbara was pretty nice before the people came. and It's not bad now. But, you know, someplace with really good crops. And they'll all chow down and kind of hang out there until the famine's over. And then I'll go and bring them back to India. He proposed this to the Buddha. And the Buddha didn't say, are you out of your frigging mind? That was just a big story, you know. He didn't. He didn't, he, didn't, he didn't say, but that was the mythical part of what I was saying. <laughs> didn't, didn't I tell you? <laughs> that was the mythical part. I was just joking. No, Mogalana was saying, I, I'll do that for you if you like, I'll, you know, so they can eat well. The Buddha rejected this, rejected this suggestion, but all survived the famine unharmed, even without such supernormal devices. So I just find that interesting. You know, that's... Back then, they were taking this really seriously. But what he didn't say, he didn't have some shipbuilder come to him or some captain saying, I've got a ship out here on the West Coast, and I'll sail off to the northern continent for you. If you want to bring some, some of your mates on board, I'll sail off to the northern continent, and we'll be fine. Why well, I'm speaking in a ridiculously quasi-Irish <laughs> accent, I'm not quite sure, matey, but that's the way it is. <laughs> That didn't happen. Nobody spoke about marching there or taking a boat there. Nope, there's no references anywhere to somebody, com somebody coming from the southern continent and with a good trek or a fast horse or a ship or a spaceship or anything like that, getting to another one. The only one that suggested how to get there was a guy with psychic powers. So might they exist, but the only way to access them would be to expand the bandwidth of your mental awareness, such that, for example, you could see the form realm, and then maybe from a more, from a different cognitive frame of reference, empowered by samadhi, which Mogalana had in spades. I mean, he was terrific at it. Might then multiple world systems that are in the same space, but like a different frequency. Might that be the case? The answer, of course, is I don't know. But it's widely believed in Buddhism and many, many other contemplative traditions, shamanic traditions, and so forth, that you, all you have to do is walk outside and look at the spirit houses. They're the local spirit houses. Those are the little ones. And then the really nice ones, those are the, for the devas, the upper class, you know, the, the aristocracy of the spirits. But the more worker bees, they have the smaller one. And they're all over the place. They're all over the place. And they're taken, I mean, they're taken pretty seriously. And these are, this, is not a, this is not a country of idiots. They consider that there are people who see these, and it will be to your good advantage if you put out little offerings. You'll find them here, right, at the front entrance. Right? And this is not a fool's paradise. This is, you know, Phuket. And what they're saying is that there are myriad beings here that are inhabiting the same place that we are spatially, but you wouldn't be able to see them unless you were one of these advanced beings who basically, right now, we're, like, if we took it's just maybe not a bad analogy, like if we're radio receivers and transmitters, we're working only within this bandwidth. You know, the, the, uh, just like the electromagnetic spectrum of, of light, we're only seeing this one. We don't see infrared, we don't see ultraviolet, we see this one, right? But other creatures will see more, or likewise, likewise with sonar and sound. So maybe, but that's for visual. But what we're talking about here is mental perception. And mental perception, if we're operating out of ordinary human mental perception, maybe once again there's like a bandwidth. But that's what any ordinary person can see. 
But if you broaden that by samadhi, then maybe you can see multiple bandwidths, and you can actually see pretas, you can see people in the bardo, and so forth and so on, and increase the bandwidth, you might see all of these interpenetrating in the same space. And maybe from that perspective, you can actually see Uttarakuru. Wouldn't be in India. Maybe you, if you were there, you can go off to North America and see whether there are people there that actually fit the, the detailed description the Buddha gave of the inhabitants of Uttarakuru. Maybe. Interesting to find out. I don't think I'm going to devote myself to that, because I'm old, you know. I, have to, I just have to co- keep, keep close to what I think is most important. But there's more to this, as my friend brought to my attention. The early canonical texts speak of past Buddhas. So we have Buddha Shakyamuni, before him Buddha, Buddha Kashyapa, and going back, the Buddha was the fourth in the series. Maitreya will be the, the fifth one, long time in the future. So they speak of past Buddhas, three of whom are said to have lived in, the, in, in northern India, in the very same region where Gautama lived and taught. We're talking about Buddhas who lived millions of years ago, not within recorded history, not even close, way, way back. But in India, where Gautama lived and taught, their lifespans were remarkably long. Well, that's kind of an understatement. Uh, Kakusanda had a lifespan of 40,000 years. These are human beings. Konagamana of 30,000 years. So Kakusanda being the first in that series of 1,000, Buddha Buddha Shakyamuni being the fourth. The first one, Kakusanda, 40,000 years, golden era. The next one, Konagamana, 30,000 years. Kasapa, I just mentioned, when the lifespan, human lifespan was 20,000 years. And our Buddha, Gotama, who arose in our world at a time of spiritual, dimension, uh, sp- spiritual degeneration, lived for only 80 years. So this is the kind of the sine wave of lifespan that goes way, and it's, it was going from 40,000, 30,000, 20,000, way down to 80. It will continue down to 10 years. That'll be the average human lifespan. It'll hit rock bottom there, and then it will start coming up. It'll be this big sine, sine wave, and eventually it will be 80,000 years. And then it will continue. That's time. <coughs> For the clearest statement of this, see the Diga Nikaya Sutta number 14. So now we have time. We have a history of history of our planet, of our world system, whatever this is. And this is a point where he's saying, but that just doesn't map on at all. At all. There's just it's kind of like looking at North America and trying to see it in the shape of Uttarakuru, and that's why I just I almost burst up with laughter, you know, like, this is not going to work out. If you try to map them using the same grid, and then it kind of just, it just doesn't work at all. The last I checked, I'm definitely not an inhabitant of Uttarakuru. You look at their qualities, they have no ego. (laughs) I'm not one of those. They have no sense of possession, no sense of uh, personal, personal possessions in Uttarakuru. I do. My precious. But this history, what's up with that? 40,000, 30,000, 20,000, and they're all coming back to the same area of India. We're talking about millions of years ago. So, okay, we got Gautama dodging the dinosaurs on his way (laughs) to Bodhgaya to sit under the Bodhi tree 
and fortunately there were no Tyrannus Rexes around time, but we just went and, <laughs> you know, it just doesn't map at all. And who of us seriously can doubt that there were dinosaurs? They just discovered a, big, a, a new one. It's the biggest one in recorded, in, that they've ever found. You don't hear of any of those in the, in the, you know, in the Pali canon. And whether it was okay for monks to eat dinosaur meat doesn't come up. <laughs> so the easiest thing is throttle back and say, you know, um, this is part of folklore that made its way in, in, into the Buddha and maybe a lot of people believed it and the Buddha was just passing on the folklore, except there's no evidence for that. It's, a nice, it's, a, it's such an easy kind of thing. But there's no evidence for that at all. The Buddha said, you know, this is the way it is. And then Moggallana saying, want me to take your monks there? That's not folklore. He was making a proposal. Would you like me to put him in the teleporter and zap him over there? And all schools of Buddhism have this same image of history, uh, this oscillating sine wave of, of lifespan. And um, 40,000 is the same. It's everywhere. It's, it's Mahayana Buddhism, Tibetan Buddhism, so forth. So... Again, we can just say, this just doesn't concern me. You know? uh, or we can be fundamentalists and say, well, then I, then I no longer believe, I'm going to, what, what are you creationists what, what, what creation saying? That um, God planted those bones just to trick people? Okay, karma. Karma karma planted those bones. There were no dinosaurs. It's a karmic trick. You know? and, but you sound, start sounding really silly really quickly. So I have no choice in the matter, but I really have, yeah, I just have to believe in dinosaurs. I have to believe in geology. I mean, what am I going to do? I'm not going to take a hammer to my head and knock out my frontal cortex. And yet I too have faith in the Buddha. But now my friend asked me what, because he asked me for my advice. He said, you know, this is not going to rock my faith in the Buddha, but these are just incompatible our notion of this planet, but also galaxies, the notion that now we know there's about one planet for every star in the universe on average, the notion that each one has one star, one, one moon and one sun, there isn't an astronomer alive that would believe that. They say, why on earth are you coming up with that? You know, it's incompatible. Right? And there's not a geologist or an evolution biologist or anybody else in the whole scientific community that's going to say, yeah, millions of years ago there were people People, I mean, we've only been around for 200,000 years, according to some pretty good evidence, thought, you know, like that. So he said, what do you think, Alan? What's the way out of this predicament? And in the Theravada, as I've mentioned before, metaphysical realism rocks. Metaphysical realism. There's a real universe. As my friend said, I just believe there's something that really happened. It's really out there. There's a real world. Uh, very much like what Einstein believed. I just read his conversation with Rabindranath Tagore. Just read it. It's delightful. And Einstein's coming. He's a very strong metaphysical realist. There's a real universe out there, and we are mapping onto it. There's one universe that follows orderly laws, and that's what we're mapping, metaphysical realist. And so, and so are the Theravada Buddhists. They, they include mind, so that's a big step in the right direction. Mind is part of the universe. But is there a physical universe out there that something really happened, it really happened for this long and so forth? Yeah, they do believe that. So what are you going to do if you're a Theravada Buddhist and you take everything the Buddha said literally, literally, 
it's literally true because it's describing the real objectively existent physical universe out there when it comes to these continents and all of that business and history. What are you going to do when you're also aware of 20th century physics that is just fundamentally incompatible? Right? What are you going to do? And my answer, is, my answer was, you're stuck. <laughs> you're screwed. <laughs> Sorry, but there's just no way. There's just no way that you can believe both if you're a metaphysical realist. Just, there's just no way it's going to work out, any more than the creationist. If you saw this opinion alert, this ridiculous movie called, what, Noah? Oh, they had dinosaurs on the ark. I mean, they had dinosaurs on the ark. I mean, they're trying to accommodate the fundamental Christians and accommodate the scientists. Didn't they do a marvelous job? Dinosaurs on the ark. You know, about <laughs> 6,000 years ago. <laughs> So I thought they had, well, it, it marketed very well. But the creationists said, well, <laughs> at least there's an ark. <laughs> so that's not going to work out. So either something's got to give, and I think any well-educated 20, 21st century person has said, it's not going to be science. Because all you have is somebody saying it. The Bible saying it, or the Buddha saying it, or, okay, Mogalana whatever, you know. But what if? And I'm just, I'm just having fun here. I'm not trying to persuade you of something. There's no agenda. Whether you'll achieve enlightenment in this lifetime does not hinge upon your believing what I'm about to say. Whether you have a fortunate, a fortunate rebirth does not, is not contingent upon your believing as you're dying. I do believe in the four continents. <laughs> That's not going to help you. <laughs> Don't worry. <laughs> you know? It'll be really okay. But in the Theravada Buddhist tradition, what the Buddha said is true. And the world is really as it is. And that's it. So I think they're just stuck. They're just stuck. I, just, I see just no hope. I just, they're stuck. As soon as you move into Mahayana, the theme of hermeneutics comes up. And hermeneutics is the whole discipline of interpretation. And specifically, as we have in Christianity, Judaism, and so much in Western biblical or religious scholarship, that's my field, religious scholar. Hermeneutics is a big, big topic. And that is, let's take it in Mahayana Buddhism. We have the teachings of the Buddha in the first turning of Wheel of Dharma, which is basically Pali Canon. The second turning of Wheel of Dharma, where Buddha is, you know, it's the perfection of wisdom. It's, it's, it's Bodhisattvas. It's, Raj, it's, it's, it's Vulture's Peak in Rajgir, where there are millions of beings assembled. Millions of beings. Devas and Bodhisattvas and Nagas and all kinds of beings. And I've been there. It's a hill. You might fit a couple of hundred people on it, but millions? Not going to happen. But of course, this is perfection of wisdom, where the Buddha taught perfection of wisdom that nothing has inherent nature, including Vulture's Peak. So as His Holiness Dalai Lama said, the only way you can make sense of that is from the perspective of the perfection of wisdom. You can't hold on to an inherently existent vulture's peak and then somehow cram you know, hundreds of thousands of bodhisattvas and so forth onto it. I mean, no telephone booth is that big. There's just not enough space. You know? But then you have the teachings on Chittamatra, where the Buddha is speaking of really the whole universe being mind only. But then he has other teachings that contradict that. And so as soon as you move into Mahayana, you have the first, second, third turning of Wheel of Dharma, and there's just definitely, if you're reading everything literally, there's just incompatibilities and inconsistencies all over the place. And everybody knows that. 
And so the, the theme is then, what do you take literally among the Buddhist teachings? Are there higher and lower teachings? Are some simply expedient means to help you along the way? But don't stop. Don't get stalled there, right? And so that's a big discipline. Tsongkhaba, yeah, Tsongkhaba wrote a brilliant treatise on this theme. I, bet I memorized 90 pages of it. That was hard. Um, all on hermeneutics. How do we determine what to take literally and what is interpretive? It's allegorical, it's, myth, it's mythological, it's an expedient means, but it's not the way things are. You know. And then there's Kala Chakra, the Kala Chakra Tantra. And the Kala Chakra Tantra, of course, embedded in Vajrayana, which means it's embedded in the teachings of Buddha nature, embedded in the teachings of the middle way and the perfection of wisdom where nothing has inherent nature, not space, not matter, and not time. They're all relative to perspective, relative conceptual designation, relative to your system of measurement, relative to conceptual framework, and none of them, none of them have any existence independent. And so in the Kala Chakra, uh, there's a book by Jamgang Kontu, I think, it's a very good book, that's Buddhist cosmology, and he gives it from the Abhidhamma perspective, basic Buddhism, and then Kalachakra perspective, and I think there's also Dzogchen perspective. Dzogchen, yeah? It's quite interesting. Exercise in hermeneutics, big time, right? And, but it was his, what it says in the Kalachakra, when you're describing the phenomenal world, planets, stars, sun, moon, bodies, etc., what scientists study, what the Kalachakra Tantra says is, there is no description of the universe that is true. Inherently true. Got it right. The right picture. Not the Dzogchen view, not the, not the Mahamudra or Vajrayana or Kalachakra or Sutrayana or Abhidhamma. None of them are literally true. None of them describe the universe as it is, as it is. They're all describing from different perspectives. They all have their, their validity, but only with respect to a perspective. But out there, emptiness. Emptiness. It's all a story. True within the context, relative to, but it's a story. So could it be? Now, a really good question came up, and, I, and if I don't finish tonight, I'll be able to finish very quickly on Monday because it's pretty much of a wrap-up here. If we take this seriously now, well, okay, well now do we say, okay, for the Christians, lo and behold, as creationists, we're right. There is a 7,000-year-old universe just not from our perspective, but from their perspective. And now some guy who's taken just too much LSD comes up and says, the universe emerged from mushrooms yesterday. That that's his reality? And you remember? That's my reality, dude. <laughs> you remember? That's my reality. Pass the joint. Because <laughs> we all have our realities, enough, so don't bug me, man. It's groovy. It's really like, wow. <laughs> so is it now just a free-for-all? Whatever bullshit you want to come up with, you just say, it's true for me. You know, whatever the astrophysicist, if, if that turns you on, dude, and your $7 billion Large Hadron Super Collider, Higgs boson, if that's what does it for you, dude, <laughs> you know? I like marijuana myself, and it's cheaper, you know? <laughs> Are we down to that? that any description of the phenomenal universe is just like whatever you say it is. 
Or is there something in between? Now, we're, of course, we're in flat-out solipsism. Flat-out solipsism. Truth is just whatever you say it is. That's solipsism. Or metaphysical realism. Whew, now we've got some concrete world. But even in physics, there's a lot of problems. Even in physics, even in biology, as E.O. Wilson says, if you're assuming that, but then how do you take your, your theories, how do, you measure, how do you map them, how do you compare them to what's really there? Because every time you make a measurement, you always get a relative of your measurement. You know? So what are you going to do between a rock and an empty place? <laughs> well, I think there's time. There's a, it's called a middle way. It's a middle way. Tsongkhapa does it as well as anybody I've ever seen. Let's see if I can fetch it. It's rather simple, very deep, and I think I can be concise. Might even finish in 10 minutes. I hope I put it here. Oh, yeah, here it is. This is from his Lamrim Chamo, Tsongkhapa. He's like a, like a Newton for Tibetan Buddhism. I mean, the man was an off-the-charts genius, as well as being a great bodhisattva, as well as being a great contemplative adept. He was... He was quite extraordinary. He intimidates me when I have his collected work, 18. I said, how can anybody know that much? And then he had, you know, he had special tutoring, Tsongkhapa. Not only did he train with the finest scholars and adepts of his era, but when he had questions, he'd just ask Manjushri. They'd have question and answer sessions. Man, I would like that. So Tsongkhapa writes, how does one determine whether something exists conventionally? Conventionally means, you know, in our phenomenal world. We're not talking about an emptiness here. We're talking about, are there ghosts in the room? I'm not talking about ultimate reality here, but, you know, all those local spirits, do they exist or not? How do we determine that? Just within our phenomenal world. Does it exist or not? How do we determine? And then he answers in three short nuclear weapons. He says, we assert that something exists conventionally, that is, relatively, if it is known to a conventional consciousness. How do we know? How do we know anything? How do I know that I have a pair of eyeglasses here? How do I know? I know it because my visual apparatus is working well. I can see it. And my tactile is working perfectly well as well. I can feel it. And so I know. Right? I know it. I know I'm not deluded, I'm not hallucinating, I've not taken LSD recently, etc. And yep, so I know it, right? Because I've seen it. Or there are other things that I know uh, by inference, by solid, sound reasoning, cogent logic, inference of causes based on effects, and so forth. Right? So we know things by means of inference and by means of direct perception. And with that, of course, I know that I have dreams, I know that I have emotions, I know that I have thoughts, I know that they are causally efficacious. If the scientist can't figure that out, well then, you know, get a mind. But I know it, I can directly perceive it. That's it, right? And so, number one, to somebody who's not, not insane, sane people see things that aren't there, right? But somebody who's not sane, if you see it, or if you logically infer it, okay, well, that's a good start. Somebody has to know it. So we can ask, does anybody know, does anybody know that God created human beings on the sixth day after doing everything else for the first five? Does anybody, anybody know? Did anybody see it? Anybody logically infer it? Because just because it's written someplace, that's not enough. I can write 
that, you know, there are Easter bunnies all over Tanyapura. Everywhere. You know. That doesn't make the Easter bunnies. So the mere fact that somebody wrote it down, that's just not going to do it. Right? And whether it's in the Pali Canon or whether it's in the Jewish Bible, somebody wrote it down, big deal. Does anybody know it? Does anybody, did anybody back then know it? Did they have some way of knowing it back then? In the early Jewish era, did they, did they develop some deep samadhi and then see it by means of, again, here's yogic perception. If you have yogic perception, according to Buddhism and other contemplative tradition, you can know things not just with ordinary mental perception, ordinary inference and sense perception, you can know things by yogic perception. And there's a wide variety of these, and they'll tell you exactly how to develop them. Buddha Gosa in the Visuddhimagga tells you exactly how to develop these. It's a lot of hard work. It's developing the jhanas. And so, but did anybody see them? And now we're really giving, you know, being very generous here by means of yogic perception, mental perception, sensory perception, or inference. Did anybody? Nobody? 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 Okay, then we're going to put it in the limbo category. We're not going to say it does exist or it doesn't exist. We're going to say it does not compute. We have no reason to assert it. So we won't right now say it doesn't exist, but just like, go figure. So that's the first thing. It needs to be known by somebody, now or in the past. And then no other conventional valid cognition contradicts it being so known. So we can have a person who doesn't know that somebody put some dadura or jimson weed into his brownie. And dadura makes you hallucinate. But unlike LSD, mescaline, and so forth, you don't know you're, you don't know you're hallucinating. In other words, you've become psychotic, and you're hallucinating big time, but you've completely become deranged, and you're taking everything to be real. And so you could see Easter bunnies all over the room, and you would say, I see them, I see them. You know. um, now, happily, the Dadura wears off. I know somebody actually took it, and he said it was awful. You really are temporarily psychotic, because you do not know, that you're, and you don't know what's going to come up, and you have no idea that it's not real. It sounds really awful. One guy took it that I met, I read just recently. Uh, but then it wears off. And then once it's worn off, maybe you're seeing, again, why not take the silly example? Easter bunnies everywhere. But then you, you, you see, oh, now the drug's worn off, and you're looking for all those Easter bunnies. Aha, I could have sworn they existed, because I didn't know I'd somebody had slipped some datura into my brownie. But now I see there are no Easter bunnies. Therefore, the valid cognition I have now, because I know that datura wore off, now this contradicts my perception that Easter bunnies were everywhere when I had datura. And there are many, many other cases of that. Uh, the belief in the ether was universal in the latter part of the 19th century. Einstein believed in it. He even created the first science project he did was how to measure the ether. A medium, a, a luminiferous ether, a, a medium that permeates all of space. It's a subtle material medium that actually ripples when light waves go through it. Everybody believed in it. Lord Kelvin said in, what was it, 19, 1891, you know, Nobel laureate, big shot, big, big physicist. He said, there's one thing of which we are more certain than anything else, and that is the real substantial existence of the luminiferous ether. Four years early, earlier, 1887, Michelson Morley proved that it didn't exist. Four years earlier. <laughs> they did in America. You know, Americans are kind of primitive. But then Einstein comes up with his, his theory, and then just after a while, well, whoops, it doesn't exist. Everybody thought it had to, because they couldn't imagine how light could operate without there being such an ether. Or absolute space-time matter energy. Everybody believed it. 
absolute space, absolute, absolutely out there, until Einstein. Well, you believed it, but you were wrong. You were all wrong. I, one guy with a pencil and a paper, I'll show you wrong. And we'll, now there are experiments coming out of my theories. Put them into gear and see what happens. Oops! Everybody since Newton was wrong. And a lot of people before Newton. So this is how science has progressed for the last 400 years. You take your best shot, like my friend Robert Livingston, that said, well, half of what we believe about the brain is false. We just don't know which half. Well, that's what science is for. You have a whole bunch of assumptions. What's the function of glial cells, etc., etc., etc.? And then you keep on doing research. Ah, that was a mistake. And science progresses because you have better technology, better instruments, more precise analysis, better mathematics, perhaps. And that's how it works. We grow up and we outgrow earlier delusions. Like, you're my soul, soulmate, says the 16-year-old, you know, to the girl that he's just fallen in love with. We'll be forever together, don't you? Will you be my steady forever? Because I'll love you forever. Ever and ever and ever. Six months later, well, reboot on that one. You know. So then we shift reality. Right? So we do that as we grow up, and science has been doing it spectacularly for 400 years. This is why scientists now virtually never say, this is an immutable fact, the savvy ones. They say, this is our best shot for the time being. But it is, in principle, open. That's science at its best. So there's the second one. This is Sonkaba, writing in the 14th, 15th century. No other valid cognition contradicts it, being so, so known. And then finally, reason that accurately analyzes the reality of whether something inherently exists does not contradict it. So now he's going for the depths, and that is he's going to Madhyamaka. And he said, ontological analysis, reasoning that probes into how things exist ultimately. Are they really there from their own side, or are they not? and comes to the conclusion that they are an empty of inherent nature, that that which is considered to be the supreme reasoning, the optimal, the ultimate reasoning, that penetrates through to the ultimate mode of existence of phenomena as being empty of inherent nature, that whatever you've observed in the phenomenal world can't contradict that. In other words, you can't bring in something, oh, we just discovered an inherently existent black hole, or inherently existent dark matter. Sorry, that's already been refuted by ontological analysis. That's not going to wash. So none of that was stupid, which is to say you can't just make up anything because if you say, I believe in Easter bunnies all over the place, then somebody's going to say, well, we don't, and have you checked your brownies recently? You know? So he concludes, we hold that anything that fails to meet these three criteria as non-existent, if somebody hasn't seen it, known it some way, and if it's not contradicted by another one, that's better, right? It's really subtle. And what he doesn't say, but I know from William James, is, it's 601, I'll finish quite quickly here, because I'm almost, almost finished. But William James brings in something quite brilliant. It's from latter 19th century philosophy. I think it's really smart. And that is what Tsongkhub has laid out here is an ep epistemic criteria by way of knowing what exists or not. But of course, it's entangled with what you're knowing, the, the, the knower, right? And how confident are you that your knowing mechanism, your eyes, your mind, or what have you, is working properly, right? So he just gave us the epistemic criteria. 
Somebody must know it, and it mustn't be contradicted by somebody who knows better. Right? But there's also the pragmatic, and William James, among his many hats, was a great pragmatist. And he said, if it works, it exists. If it works, it exists. If you've got a laser, if you're trying to build a laser, and then you build something where it can cut through metal, and it's light, that's a laser. You were successful. You have a true method for developing a laser. If it works, if, is, this, is this medicine, is this a, a good medicine for hepatitis A? Some funky herbs with 35 ingredients that some Tibetans created. Is that true or false? Is that medicine, effective medicine for hepatitis A? It's a yes or no question. Well, you can analyze those 35 herbs and so forth in that compound until the cows come home, and you won't know. How would you possibly know? It's 35 ingredients of just flowers and herbs and this and that and the other thing. Uh, you have to be like me, have hepatitis three times. The first time was bad, the second time was near death, and the first, third time was really near death, and be saved each time. And the last, time, well, the last two times, really obvious. Took the medicine, bam, the next day. Last time I was dying, 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 took the medicine, getting well, getting well. It was a V. It was so obvious. So is that medicine effective for hepatitis A? Well, yeah. And back then, we had hippies from all over, all over India. When they get hepatitis, they'd migrate to Dharamsala they got Yish, get to get Yishudun's medicine. Because Western medicine had nothing for it at that time. They'd come there. You know? And so the pragmatic... Is an assertion true? Well, try it out. Is it, possible, is it possible that there is something called the substrate consciousness? Does that exist or not? Well, you can debate about it forever, but how, would, how are you going to win a debate or lose a debate by debating about it? Go to a, neuro, go to a neuroscientist say, what do you think, neuroscientists? Does shamatha exist? Substrate consciousness? They're not going to give you a clue. How would they possibly know? Ask your gardener. Well, practice shamatha. And see whether it works. So there's that pragmatic element. And Buddhism fundamentally boils down to there's a reality of suffering, source of suffering, cessation in the path. Is the path true or not? Is the path true or not? Does there exist a path to the cessation of suffering and its causes? Is there a path that gives rise to Buddhahood itself? Is there a path that gives rise to rainbow body, where your body dissolves into the energy of primordial consciousness? Is there a path to that? Does that exist or not? Well, how do you know whether anybody's seen it? If you meet an arhat, how do you know it's an arhat? If you meet a Buddha, they, you know, they don't all have ushnishas and so forth. They appear in all different kinds of ways. So how do you know? Only one way. See whether it works. It's pragmatic. Now, that's not independent of the epistemic, because all the way along, you're using your intelligence. Do you perceive? Do you not perceive? Is your, is your earlier observation negated by a more advanced one, more sophisticated one? One brief quote, by very brief quote from William James, and we're finished. But he's trying to introduce into the matrix of scientific methodology, introspection. He tried. He failed. He had, he had no idea how to develop attention skills, and he had no idea how to refine introspection. And neither did anybody else back then, not in Europe. And none of them traveled to India, or China, or Southeast Asia, or Tibet, or Mongolia, or Sri Lanka, and so forth, where it was just everywhere, you know, throw a rock. They didn't. 
They were ethnocentric. And William James has some very, very prejudicial notions about the Orient, just like full of bullshit. You know. It was one of his limitations. But he was trying, but when it came to the mind, he wanted to understand subjective experience. He said, come indirectly by way of behavior, indirectly by way of brain studies, but God, you have to bite the bullet and look at it, for heaven's sakes. Like all other branches of science, look at the phenomenon you're trying to understand. I mean, come on, it's common sense here, but we have to be good at it. So he's trying to introduce introspection, and here's what he says about it. Introspection is difficult and fallible. That is, even when you're observing your own mind, you can make misperceptions. Draw false conclusions. In other words, don't think just because you observe it introspectively, some that somehow that's going to be right or infallible. But introspection is difficult and fallible. But then he says, and the difficulty is simply that of all observation of whatever kind. So again, for astronomy, botany, zoology, any observation, it's not unique to introspection. It's every observation has this difficulty built in that they're fallible. The, well, well, what do you do with the fallibility? Right? The only safeguard is in the final consensus of our farther knowledge. Farther in this context just means later. You review the earlier observations, the, re, the earlier measurements, the earlier conclusions, scientific papers, and so forth. Keep on reviewing the, the earlier ones. You're rechecking, 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 and then making advances. The only Safeguard is in the final consensus of our further or later knowledge about the thing in question, later views, correcting earlier ones, until at last the harmony of a consistent system is reached. And that's when you write your chemistry textbook, biology textbook, geology textbook, astronomy textbook, etc., etc., etc. There's consensual knowledge that you have, okay, we still have a cutting edge, there are, how do you say, uh, there's a disagreement, there's debate here on this, on the cutting edge of it, but this much we know. That here we're solid, right? And now here's the fringe. And we keep on trying to extend the area of consensus, but it's always coming back later and reviewing, reassessing the earlier, right? So you see Tsongkhaba and, and, uh, and William James saying the same thing? Isn't that kind of cool? And there's your middle way. But you see, you have no absolute criterion. I mean, it's, okay, but do, what does God say? Just, just, you know, I'm, I'm really, we're really having a hard time here in quantum mechanics. God, would you help us out here? Silence. Okay, Buddha, 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 Buddha. You're really, Buddha, tell, what's the absolute perspective? You know, you're, you're, what's the app? And the Buddha says, I'm seeing multiple worlds. <laughs> which one do you want? Which one are you referring to? <laughs> Now he's speaking with an American Indian accent. That's terrible. <laughs> so you can't call on the Buddha because a lot of things are, you have to interpret. They're not to be taken literally. Hard to call on God. Can't call on nature. Edward, Edward O. Wilson, the great metaphysical realist, can't call on nature. Where are you going to find it? Hello, nature, send us a message. Have a vision of nature. So you have no absolute yardstick, no absolute criterion. So you just bootstrap your way through within your own mandala as a community of physicists, as a community of yogis, as a single yogi. You just keep on bootstrapping your way through pragmatically and epistemically. And you know it's working if your mental afflictions are subsiding, sense of genuine happiness is arising, virtues are arising, insights are arising, and you'd be pretty confident when you achieve rainbow body that you did something right. Wasn't that fun? <laughs> that was the idea.
There we are. I'm finished. No more notes. I might have something to say on Monday, but I'll have to meditate a lot to see what else comes up because I don't know know what I'll be saying. But that's it. Enjoy your weekend, and I'll see you Monday morning.